0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, January 31st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The cold that is bracing, biting, stinging, painful. The cold as a rebuke. The cold as restriction. It is that last one I want to talk about. You know, the worst part of the cold is that it's cold. Okay, put that on a throw pillow. But a close second is that it's restrictive. We put on layers... We put on ski masks or gaiters. We can't see like we'd like to see. And then we draw the hoods. Sometimes there's those fuzzy hoods. We create this fur tunnel. So our vision is impeded and our limbs are limited and we stagger about like zombie snowmen peering through slits. Peripheral vision, spatial awareness, our natural feel for personal space, it's all upended. And some of us the worst of us, among all of us in the Inuit gear, take this time to peer at our cell phones, which turn zombie snow people into stupid zombie snow people. People on cell phones, I find, when they try to navigate the world, play defense without even knowing it. They drift towards the middle of the sidewalk or wherever they are, I guess, to limit the chance of falling off the edge. They go slower, again, as a defense mechanism. Self-preservation. And they ruin a perfectly terrible winter day. I hate these cell phone peering snow people. And for a time, glove technology was keeping them from all of us. It didn't allow for swiping and the wearing of gloves at the same time. But now swipable glove technology has been either perfected or weaponized. Time after time... I am up against a stumbling, zoned out, padded up, inflated marshmallow of humanity who is in my way on this eight degree day with the wind chill negative 10, with the cell phone intolerable. You, you there in your Canada Goose Parker and your iPhone X. That is $2,000 worth of impediment. Stay home or stay focused, but please stay out of my way. I have frostbite to acquire. On the show today, I spiel about centrist strapping. It's going to be some hot centrist talk. But first, she's an author and a podcaster and, as you will hear, a bit of a poacher. That will come up. Hilary Frank is out with a new book, Weird Parenting Wins, Bathtub Dining Family Scams, and Other Hacks from the Parenting Trenches. Hillary Frank, up next. The Longest, Shortest Time is a fantastic podcast hosted by my old producer, Stolen from Me, Andrea Salenzi. The original host and creator of that show is Hillary Frank. She is out with a new book called Weird Parenting Wins. And I want you to know, Hillary, that my secret goal in this interview is to steal you from her. From aren't, Andrea, aren't you still I executive did not, producer?
1: I am, but I did not steal her from you. She had Y O Y. She left you. Yeah,
0: I think it was that was just the law. They she had to put a little bit of a buffer in between <laughs> what she wanted to do. It was like two people having an office affair, mm-hmm. and then you know they break up with their spouses, and they don't move in right away. They give it some plausible deniability. That's what went on with you stealing my Andrea. Well, good luck. So the structure of the book is because you hosted the show for many years, you created a community of parents, mm-hmm. and they're written as letters to you, but what was this called from message boards? How did, So we should say, it's your chapter uh, with your takes on things from bathroom things to sleep time things to discipline things, and then you have you know 20 different parents from around the world weighing in on what worked for them. So did you solicit that explicitly for a book, or did these just come to you on some message boards? Somewhere had that work.
1: So when I first had a kid, I read a lot of books mm-hmm. by experts. You know, like how to get your kid to sleep, how to soothe your kid, how to get your kid to eat, how to get your kid to potty train. And I just felt like all of these things were written in such a prescriptive way. And sometimes the things would work for me, and often they didn't. And then when they didn't, I would feel like something was wrong with me or wrong with my kid. I I felt like I was at the most vulnerable time in my life, and I was failing. And so. A couple years into parenthood, I realized that the things that were working for me were things I had just invented in moments of desperation through trial and error. Things like, you know, the thing that got my kid to sleep was just rubbing the little curve above her nose. Like, that I didn't find in a book. Yeah, So. Then I, I did a call out to the audience and I said, you know, does anyone else have anything like this weird stuff you've tried? And I made a blog post and got all these answers back. And it was stuff like, yeah, my husband pig snorts in the baby's ear to get her to sleep or her to stop <laughs> crying. You know, uh, there was the parents who traded off charging their electric toothbrushes and conducted the baby to sleep, you know, made their own white noise machine. And um, I just thought these are great. Oh, so you put
0: the toothbrush on Buzz. Yes. And then you wave it in the air. Yes. And both the motion and the sound is soothing to the baby. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, That is a guy I would never have thought about. Like a
1: regular white noise machine didn't Mm -hmm. work. But the electric toothbrush was a winner.
0: Is the general rule... Uh, here are 10 things and one might work for you or do you have sort of silver bullets that work for more parents than not?
1: And one of the things that seems to be working for people, especially of young children, is white lies. huh. So, you know, the kid who um, refuses to eat anything but chicken, the mom uh, cooks a new dish called French chicken, Yeah, which is actually pork chops.
0: Ah.
1: Or the kid who refuses to eat anything but takeout, She got some takeout containers, made a home cooked meal and
0: said, look, we're having takeout. Oh, that's good. So that's not even a lie. That's 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 a lie. Okay, it's technically a lie. It's a white lie. Yeah. I also think that if you're lying to uh, an insane person, i.e. a three year old, is it really lying? It's pretending. Yeah. It's it's
1: oh, it's like good. playing into their um, desire for everything
0: to be pretend play. So, do you think we uh, people like you and I rely on these books and are fascinated by this advice for them, for the for the babies, or for us? For us, yeah. <laughs> but is that it's bad? It's like is save that me, save me. Us? I'm going crazy. Save me. It's not to raise the best child. It's to get through childhood the best.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Like, all of this stuff is all about me. It's like, (laughs) am I going to save myself today? You know, am I going to have a good time? I can't deal with whining. I'm going to make it, (laughs) I'm going to make this a better time right now.
0: (laughs) How to get through your child's childhood without your child (laughs) annoying you to hell. It is I, – I obviously think it's good not to unduly harsh someone for failing. So on the uh, Slate Show, mom and dad are fighting. They have parenting wins and parenting fails. You emphasize the wins. But uh, when Dr. Spock was giving advice, it was – he was a kind man, but it was pretty much this is the way to do it. Um, in fact, he re- – his advice represents sort of a, a change of – of a more doctrinaire way to do it. But I think for years, I think for 20 or 30 years, we've had essentially liberal, permissive, slash, what would be the nice way to say that? Um, Interactive parenting. Mm -hmm. We've had children raised by people who aren't necessarily doctrinaire and think that there's one way to do it.
1: I mean, I think it's done differently all over the place. I don't, I don't... That's right. Right? Yeah. But, um... I think that also a lot of parenting media is really divisive and thrives on parents choosing one side or another of various parenting techniques. I I had the opportunity to interview Ina Mae Gaskin, you know, the famous midwife. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I felt the same way about her book, that it, it was, um, you know— Very prescriptive in terms of trying to have a natural birth. Yeah, that's right. No no interventions, no surgery, no medication. So
0: Yeah, it's um, like doula totalitarianism.
1: Yeah, and there are people who have interpreted her message as that, as as being like, okay, so you don't get the golden hour, the hour after your child is born with your baby that whole time, then you are going to have a messed up relationship with your baby for the rest of your life people have interpreted her that way. And so I interpreted her that way. And I interviewed her and I called her on it. And I said, you know, I felt really supported by you when I read your book before I had a baby. And then when I wasn't able to have a natural birth and I wasn't able to have a golden hour, I felt like you had nothing left to say to me. And I felt rejected by you. Uh-huh. And she was amazing. And she was like, gosh, I never like thought about that kind of interpretation of my book. I don't intend that I want people to feel included and understand that things don't always go that way and it's she is currently rewriting her book revising her book because of our conversation that's awesome what about you did you did you read parenting books when yeah you had kids? I still do yeah, yeah. yeah and what do
0: you think I th- I take them I take bits and pieces from each if something occurs to me as uh intuitive, I probably will, will cotton to it more, but isn't that just playing to a bias? And I've tried tips and tricks that I've uh, found in a bunch of different books. But if anyone says this is the way to do it, that's like an automatic disqualification for me. The more any kind of self-help is, uh, tells you that this is the one way to do it, the more likely that it is wrong and that it's trying to form a cult rather than actually help people, I think, as a general rule.
1: Yeah. I really like the books that are, like, about child psychology. Yeah. So you can, like, understand where the kid is coming from.
0: Yes, exactly. So what have you learned? What weird parenting wins uh, stem from those books? You
1: know, so there's one that I really love called Playful Parenting by Lawrence Cohen. Love it. Love that book. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of, like, that's really the spirit of that book is the spirit of weird parenting wins because it's all about, like, finding the game finding the yeah. play
0: doesn't he have like a thing with uh not getting hit by a car in the parking lot parking lot rules isn't that something that's yeah yeah either yeah one of his or inspired by his Yeah,
1: i started doing um pillow fights with my daughter f- inspired by him yeah, yeah like when when she really feels like she's riled up i'm like all right let's have a pillow fight and yeah. it, it turns it into like a fun game
0: yeah uh there's a part in your book where you're you and your daughter were going skiing, and and mm-hmm. then the line was like an hour long, and it was mm-hmm. miserable. And then you turned it into a song.
1: Well, I said, "There's no, you, you can't <laughs> whine. If you're going to whine, you have to sing the blues." Yes, and it worked
0: for a while. It worked for a little while, <laughs> a little while. But then, what's the greater goal that you could invent something fun that works for turn, fifteen yeah, minutes? Exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, it it depends, and and it depends on the situation. But generally, we're trying to turn things into games. Yeah. How old is Sasha
0: now? She will be nine next month. How much? So the book was pretty much put to bed when she was what? Seven, eight? A year ago, yeah. yeah. Okay. (laughs) So now that she's getting a little older and you don't have to really manage every situation, is the entire topic of parenting, I know it's what you do, but is it pulling you in less and less? Do you feel like you have to consult books and, and find out what people are debating as she gets older and more independent?
1: I don't. Yeah. That really felt like that stuff was high stakes when she was like up to five years old. And then after that, she became more of a person who I could actually negotiate with. And we had our own relationship. She felt less like generic baby.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Do you... I think that you know, twenty years ago, we have we had to be more uh, active, mindful about things like baby booking and scrapbooking, and now every Google photo goes in the cloud. Mm-hmm. But did you did you do anything to preserve moments of childhood? Do you have any advice about that, huh. or things you wish you would have done?
1: Yeah, so I don't put my daughter's face on the internet, um, but we keep like. You know, I record her a mm-hmm. bunch that maybe isn't surprising to you, that's but good. we do some audio recording because I think voices just really capture the age. They they capture all of the like weird little subtleties in their personality. And so I like that. And I I don't ever record her if she doesn't want to be
0: recorded. Yes, that's good.
1: But I also like to get her to ask me questions right. because I feel like that's really revealing. It and shows what's on
0: her mind. She'll
1: right. ask, you know, things about, you know how many babies you can have at one time and then i'll be like well what do you think and then mm. and then it starts a whole thing where we get her theories i love kid theories
0: it's awesome right so you keep those you have I do. a treasure trove of those i do have a treasure trove of those do you ever uh, edit her questions or answers
1: I have put her on the podcast before, and she actually asked Andrea um, some really good would-you-rathers when Uh Andrea came on as host. It was sort of like we were hazing her. (laughs) And so Sasha asked her, would you rather eat a skunk or poop in front of a thousand people?
0: Huh. Huh. Definitely eat a skunk There's nothing about eating I mean, it's it's a mammal All mammals can mm-hmm. be eaten And even though it has that stink gland It probably wouldn't stink I wouldn't eat the stink gland What would Andrea say?
1: Well, so Andrea had a
0: hard time Because
1: she was like I'm trying to get a date Oh,
0: <laughs> right, right, right So
1: neither one of these things Was really good for that
0: <laughs> Yes Well, I think eating the skunk Might repel people Whereas pooping in front of a thousand people Might attract the wrong people Yeah, yeah. I think she went with skunk in the end <laughs> You always go with skunk in the end. Weird Parenting Wins by Hilary Frank, the creator and current executive producer and poacher of the longest, shortest time podcast. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. We get it! Howard Schultz ran a coffee company. And if we didn't get it, he is here to remind us. I think the Democrats need a little bit less caffeine right now is what I think. That was Fox. This was CBS. Well, you just played uh, Senator Harris as saying she wants to abolish the insurance industry. That's that's not correct. That's not American. We're, what's next? What, what industry are we going to abolish next? The coffee industry? And this was on the Goop podcast. Yes, the Goop podcast with Gwyneth Paltrow. Because I, you know, I was an expat for a long time and I've lived in different countries all over the world. And I think that there's something very specifically entrepreneurial about Americans. And I I wanted to get your take on that. Why do you think we have that spirit in spades? I think it's in the coffee. (laughs) Uh, And scene that we're done. No, it's not a scene. It's not a distinct scene. It's a rolling 24-hour play festival where the hilarious coffee references never get cold. I do think the vitriol from the left around Howard Schultz is kind of ridiculous, which isn't to say he's a good candidate or right for the time or not a white male billionaire businessman. And by the way, the billionaire businessman that kind of usually incorporates the white male part. We get that. But I do think that his temerity, his how dare he, insouciance, it's been represented or reported as fact by a lot of the mainstream media. But probably isn't Howard Schultz and the things he's saying or the things he's critiquing, isn't it kind of useful? Isn't he a little bit? to some extent, right? Like, does Medicare for all really come with some costs? No, we just hate Howard Schultz for saying so. I understand these are desperate times and Schultz represents a potential spanner in the works or a clump of nutmeg in the cup. Hey, Howard, I do the coffee references too. I do think that four years ago, if there were the equivalent businessman who was toying with a run as an independent, that would have been treated differently. It would have been treated as an interesting, perhaps fun story. There are certain stories that political reporters all like. One is a possible, viable independent candidate. They'd like that. Another is a brokered convention. Oh, yes, please give us a brokered convention. But in 2020, aberrations will not be met with delight, but with suspicion. Because isn't the orange aberration enough? The thinking will go. I do compare coverage of Schultz to coverage of Ross Perot and find that Schultz coverage is much, much more hostile, even from the supposedly neutral media. Steve Kornacki was a guest on a recent episode of What Next? He was talking about this a couple days ago. You know, it still holds. What Next is a very of-the-moment show, but this Kornacki episode where he offers us a trip in the backseat of the time machine. As Mary said, that's a good one. Check it out. I want to be clear. I'm not saying the media should take Howard Schultz seriously or supportively. It's just that most questioners seem more like the heckler inside the Barnes & Noble, not the interviewer at the Barnes & Noble. Here's a big problem with taking Howard Schultz seriously. Seems to have no ideas. As in, he hasn't actually proposed anything. That is a negative. He does make coffee references, though. Although you wouldn't know it from most of his interviews, he's not totally uncharismatic. He has that kind of C-suite charisma, which really relies to some extent on the participants saying, oh, I'm in a conversation with Howard Schultz. My biggest problem with Schultz, is just centrism. Centrism itself. Not the idea, not ideas that are presented as centrist. The label, centrism, it sucks. It outsources the imperative to come up with an idea and just defines itself as, oh, I'll be in the middle of these two other ideas. It's not a philosophy. It's an averaging. Hey, if you want to walk and I want to ride, let's ask the centrist that guy wants to take a Segway scooter. If I want gazpacho and you want tomato bisque, the centrist will recommend a cold tomato consomme that needs to be sent back to the kitchen and heated up. If you want eggs and I like French toast, the centrist will suggest a McGriddle. And who the hell wants a McGriddle? Howard Schultz, I guess, and Joe Biden and Mitch Landrew and Michael Bloomberg, John Hickenlooper, Terry McAuliffe, Michael Bennett. These were all the centrists who were listed in today's New York Times and described as, quote, monochrome and male. OK, as far as the monochrome thing, I think there's actually a wide variety in the color tone of a uh, Joe Biden. He's more of the ruddy type and a Michael Bloomberg who's just pure blanched. But the point is made. But why? Why so male? Why so monochrome? I have theories. One, age. The average age of all the gentlemen described in the New York Times is 65. And it's not that centrists are necessarily old, although they tend to be older. Our passion's cool as the testosterone and estrogen dips. It's that to be a politician who was forming his his opinions in the 1970s and 80s and then implementing those policies in the 1990s, if you were a Democrat, if you were an effective Democrat, You were probably centrist. Also, you were probably white and male. Up until, I don't know, 30 years ago, politics was fairly closed off to women, even more closed off to people of color. Female politicians over the age of 65 tend to be more centrist. Also, by the way, Debbie Stabenow, Patty Murray, senators, both 68, Claire McCaskill, no longer in the Senate. She's 65. Now, it's true. Elizabeth Warren is 69 and not a centrist. But remember, she was not in politics when these other politicians were developing policies and creating popular ideas. Centrism was once the path to success, especially for Democrats, and the politicians we're talking about, which is to say a politician who was good enough at his yeah, his job back then would probably have to have been a centrist. Now, what about the white part? OK, the white part probably has to do with the real idea that things have been working out much better for white Americans than Americans of different hues. So it's much more likely that a white American would be against radical changes. But there's also a lot of political science that shows that the public tends to regard black politicians as more liberal than they actually are. I once interviewed Douglas Wilder about this, and he talked about running up against this idea that when when he on his way to become the first elected African-American governor, his opponent would paint him as being wildly liberal. And he would say, no, no, I'm much more centrist. But the liberal charge stuck. So we tend to code black and Hispanic politicians who are centrist as not centrist. But actually, I do believe that minority politicians tend to have more liberal stances than white politicians. Although in this particular presidential race, the two black candidates who have uh, one who's announced Kamala Harris and one who's supposed to run uh, Cory Booker, they're liberal, but they're not the most liberal in the race. Far from it. Harris, in particular, has that law and order background that supposedly will alienate progressives. Now, since I've been called a centrist, I don't really think of myself as a centrist, but I certainly don't think of myself as conservative or very progressive. I've thought about this. One, I want a better label. Two, I do wish there were more of a rainbow coalition on my side, if you know what I mean. Three, I would love to have a leading light or a public face who is slightly more inspiring than John Hickenlooper. And I happen to like John Hickenlooper. So I have one solution for all my centrist wishes. His name is Barack Obama. I'm not a centrist. I'm an Obamacist. I'm an Obamarian. I agreed with almost all of Barack Obama's policy stances. He thinks things out. He's not a reflectively middle grounder, but he's also not radical. He's a great poster child. In fact, we've all seen the poster. And lastly, while he is sadly and unavoidably male, as am I, and I don't know who to apologize for that, but I feel I might have to, he's not a white male. So I am an Obamarian, or an Obamacist, I guess we'd say. I am proudly an Obamacist. And I don't think we Obamacists have much to apologize for. I also don't think that Howard Schultz is the one to carry the mantle of Obamacism, although even hoping to do so takes some audacity. And that's it for today's show. We have a trivia question, which we will answer in our newsletter, which you could subscribe to at slate.com slash just news. It's this. It's about yesterday's squatty potty conversation. The, the mascot of the squatty potty is a unicorn. So we want to know what creature did the ancient Greek historian, Theseus, mistake for a unicorn. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname are the producers of The Gist. The algorithm predicts they will soon be hired away by one of this week's guests. I don't know, maybe improver Drew Tarver or a Princeton professor, or possibly tomorrow's guest, Fire Festival attendee Seth Crosno. Tudor Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, is up for hearing what kind of offer a Fire Festival attendee is making. I mean, they had a $250,000 yacht package. It's a lot of scratch going on there. The Gist. Here is my one parenting hack. Get the children to call you father or mamar. And this is nice for two reasons. One, you can't really whine when you say father, but also when you're on the playground and everyone's saying, daddy, daddy, there's one voice saying father, and you hear it and you know it's your kid who's stuck on the monkey bars. Boom per da and thanks for listening.